It's Daily Thunder, booming out the truth of Jesus Christ live every weekday morning from the Ellerslie campus in Windsor, Colorado. To learn more, visit ellerslie.com. The U.S. Army's 1st Infantry Division wears a big red one on their uniforms. That red one is symbolic at so many levels. Hey, this is Eric. Before we crashed the beaches of Normandy alongside the U.S. Army's 1st Infantry Division on June 6, 1944, I wanted to mention that we still have space left in our late fall week-long training program here at Ellerslie. It starts November 7th, and it will be a power-packed week full of... Jesus Christ. If you're interested in learning more, go to ellerslie.com forward slash daily. Now let's hit Omaha Beach with the fighting first. Let's come to understand how their nickname, the Big Red One, parallels the sacrificial cross work of Jesus Christ 2,000 years ago. Well, guys, if you are uh, just joining the Daily Thunder uh, experience for the first time and you discover that Eric Ludi is on episode 68 uh, in a series, uh, that is obviously going to show you that you're a little behind. Uh, but uh, the one, one of the things that I love about this World War II series is technically each one is a standalone, or should be, even though the intrigue is supposed to sort of tantalize you to say, I'm going to need to listen to the other 67. I mean, that's what's supposed to happen, isn't it? Uh, because it is so good. I, I have been so deeply moved and charged in my spiritual man in going through history. I've also on Sundays, for those of you that are familiar in my Sunday uh, sermon podcast, I've been going through the history of America, which I, I have a pause on now, but I had 14 episodes in that, and I made it up to 1620, uh, which is a key date, you know, the arrival of the pilgrims at Plymouth Rock. Uh, and so, but what a foundation uh, this country has. There's so much history, so much richness that we have forsaken today, not even intentionally. It's just that we don't know it. Uh, we have not had it imparted to us. So it's not like we're deliberately going out of our way to say, I'm going to forget that, even though there are those that are canceling culture, they're nullifying history. A lot of us just don't know it. We were never taught what actually has gone before us. That, there's a great cloud of witness before us that has stood, that has uh, represented the kingdom of heaven, and we just don't know it. And in the study of war, which is a unique thing to do, because I'm not necessarily the sort of guy that really relishes the thought of picking up a gun and going off to war. That's not really the way I'm built, and yet spiritually it is. Spiritually, I am a fighter. I'm a guy who likes to take on impossible challenges and storm beaches, uh, but physically, not so much. And so it's a very interesting thing. I'm very fascinated in war because it parallels something that I'm intimately familiar with, and that is the, the, the dogfight uh, with the devil and knowing that I have weapons that are stronger. Just like the British, they had better planes. I don't know if you've studied uh, the Air Force. I have a message called Air Superiority uh, in this series. And uh, extremely interesting to, to realize, you know, the, the British uh, actually had stronger planes, better built planes, and the Luftwaffe just had more. And so as they continued to fight, uh, they started whittling down the Luftwaffe and to gain, the, 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 whole, the whole goal was to gain air superiority. And that's sort of the same for us. Uh, you know, we have the prince of the power of the air, you know, the devil, and he, he controls all these airwaves and a lot of what's being broadcast out there. Yep, uh, it's, it's what he's sponsoring. And yet we have 
greater strength and greater weapons to control the air. And so we just have to know how to employ them. We have to know how to tear down the enemy's strongholds. And that's why studying war is so intriguing to me. So in the flow of history, if you're just now joining us, we are uh, June 6th, 1944. Technically, I don't know that we've made it past 6.36 a.m. And maybe we've gone seven minutes past that. (laughs) Because in the first seven minutes, uh, the A company is going to literally have... uh, what, 19 of their 35, well, 19 of 35 just from Bedford, Virginia that are going to be uh, shot down and killed. I mean, this is like Omaha Beach uh, is quite the, the story. And that's what we went through on Friday. Uh, it's in the sands of Omaha. That message is what it was called. And today we're going to take just a different slice. We're sort of at the same time period, but it's a different angle on the same thing. I've spent a lot of time around D-Day I guess it's deserving of a little attention since it's one of the most remarkable moments in all of history, not just U.S. history, but world history, because you have this enemy that has been boasting power, and he has created what we could call Fortress Europe, and no one can break through it. The Allies can't seem to find a way in, whether it's through Norway, whether it's through the shorelines of France, whether it's up through Italy, they cannot figure out how to do it, and you have Stalin coming in from Soviet Russia, and he's beginning to push back, and eventually Stalin will actually reach Berlin, which is going to create uh, the world that many of us grew up in uh, with the, you know, East Germany and the Berlin Wall and various things like that as communist comes into Germany. That's going to be the after effects of World War II, but in this process, we have an impenetrable fortress, Fortress Europe, and Hitler has just his fortifications all around the outside. And so the, the most likely spots to be hit, he has uh, his men in place and his fortifications in place, and it's going to be hard to do this. Two and a half years, the Allies are going to work together to come up with a plan. It's called Operation Overlord, and it's going to be an attack from uh, Great Britain across the English Channel and hit the beaches of France, and they're going to have to choose which beaches to hit because there's a lot of options. And ironically, the best option isn't going to be chosen. The best option is a place called Pas de Calais, which is more north, and it's just like sprawling. It's a great landing ground for thousands, hundreds of thousands of troops, and yet Hitler knows it too. So Hitler is going to put most of his fortifications right there. And so they're going to choose a less inviting location. Uh, which is right at the base of bluffs, these like cliffs. So the enemy is, I mean, in a pretty good spot to just sort of take you out unless you can take him out first. And so Omaha Beach represents, out of all the five beaches that they're going to hit, it's the one where they don't take out the machine gun nests. They, they're supposed to, but they don't. They bomb too far back. And so as a result, these guys, these German Nazis, are ready to take out anyone that arrives on Omaha Beach, which is what we talked about on Friday, the A company is like the tip of the spear. They're the first ones to get off the transports, and they don't make it very far. Most of them die in the first seven minutes. So this one's called the Big Red One, and uh, this is actually in reference to the 1st Infantry Division, which uh, the more you study the military, the more you recognize that any division, no matter which one it is, is going to say that they're the greatest and they're the best, and that's their history, and they're going to talk about it and brag about it. And I like that. There's part of something about that that is, is fun for me to watch, all the different military branches and how they make fun of the other branches. 
and yet in a time of war, they highly respect each other. When it comes down to it, I mean, when, when you're in the sort of the clubhouse mode where you're punching each other in the arm, you're going to make fun of each other. But when it comes down to it, you're really glad that they're there. And you're really glad that they're good at what they do. And so uh, the Infantry Journal Press back in 1945. So this is right, the, the war is going to end in 1945, World War II. It says the oldest and probably the best known of all American infantry divisions is the first. So the first is going to be chosen for the beaches of Normandy, very specifically for Omaha Beach. And so on Friday, I went through the fact that there's the 29th Division, which is what we focused on, because the, the Bedford boys are, are from uh, the 29th Division, which I should have played up more, because the number 29 is so significant in my life. I should have played that up. I need to come up with an excuse to get back to that, because afterwards I was like, that was a golden opportunity that I did not take. I had it in my mind, but then I failed to execute. And then, so now we have the first, and these two combined show the forces that are attacking Omaha Beach. Okay, so it's the first and the 29th. These are this is a very stout group. and These are American uh, army divisions. And so uh, I'm going to be creating a parallel as we go through this, you know, because we're calling about the big red one. And I, you know, to teach history is actually not my goal. It's to teach you a spiritual reality. And, you know, you want to talk about the greatest infantry division that has ever existed. It is uh, a division, and we could call it the one not, uh, we can even call it the big red one. I mean, that's what's so interesting about this. Everything about this is so fascinating to me. But, so the 1st Infantry Division, its nickname is the big red one. And there's a reason for that, I'll explain. I almost called this message the fighting first because that says it so well too. There's, there's like so many things about this that are intriguing to me. But listen to this. Uh, this is in reference to, in 1945, to the 1st uh, Infantry Division. And it is hearkening back all the way to World War I. And World War I is going to have some parallels with World War II, but both of the, the first division is going to actually showcase the same type of qualities in both wars. First in France, first to fire on the enemy, first to suffer casualties, first to take prisoners, first to stage a major offensive, first to enter Germany, and as an equally notable exception, last to come home. So that's in World War I, and you're going to notice in World War II is so many similarities uh, that these guys, for whatever reason, are always chosen to lay down their lives first. I, lo I love that statement, and last to come home. There's something about that that has always stirred me in military lore and history is, as uh, the statement goes, the, last, the, the first guy to jump off the transport, like in Vietnam, he jumps off, and he's risking all the bullets when he does, because he's the leader. He's willing to show his men that, you know, this is how you, how you do it. He jumps off the transport first, and then he's the last one back on, even carrying guys from his unit back onto the transport uh, helicopter. It's like, yeah, when, when I hear things like that, it's like, yeah, that's how you lead. That's how you do it. And so everything in this is a picture of leadership is an example of something that, I, that deeply stirs me. It's like the first one to jump into the fray and the last one to go home. Uh, and there's, you know, my dad was always the first one up in the morning and he was the last one to go to bed making sure all the doors were locked. He's a leader. He's a dad, right? And so what you see is this, this concept of the fighting first. One term that I've used a lot in uh, 
teaching how Christ works and how that relates to manhood is the first sufferer. That's the term. That's why this is very attractive to me, that, that term, the fighting first, because Jesus is the first sufferer. That means if someone is going to suffer in any circumstance, it should be the man, and that's what Jesus models. The man is actually built to be the first one to suffer. So if we were to look in this room and someone had to suffer, well, I should raise my hand and say, take me. And that would be right and noble and honorable for me as a leader to be the first one to sacrifice, the first one to give up. And this is the model of Christ. So if a bullet is flying, as I oftentimes will say, the bullet is making its way and there's a little orphan, well, then as the fighting first, I'm built to stand in front and to take that hit. If there's a widow, if there's even a, a, a girl, that's actually, for, for us as men, it's like, hey, I'm the one that's, that's built to protect the girl. And that's what Jesus is gonna do. He's gonna stand in, in the stead of his bride. He's gonna say, take me instead. He's the fighting first. And so what we see is this incredible parallel uh, with that, that uh, the big red one, the reason uh, that we have that term is this is the patch that they have, and so the Germans would always call them that. It's like the big red one, uh, and that it is. It's a big red one, and so that's actually where they got their, their nickname, and so it's symbolic in so many regards because when you get to the color red in Scripture, it's very, very significant, and that's what we're going to go into. So the motto for the first, I like this. This is a great motto, guys. No mission too difficult, no sacrifice too great. You know, that could stir me up a little. Uh, that, that's great. I, that's one of the things I love about the military, too, is they have a way with words that stirs men uh, to action. So date, June 6th, 1944, time, 6.36 a.m., location, Omaha Beach. Technically, a place no one really wants to be in all of world history is right there at that time. If you go to Omaha Beach right now, it's pleasant. You know, I'm sure the, the tide is like lapping against the seashore, and, and you can hear a gull flying overhead. Eh, eh. Uh, but you wouldn't want to be there at 6.36 a.m. on June 6, 1944. It's anything but peaceful. And that's precisely where uh, the big red one uh, shows up on the beaches, right along with the 29th Division. So the fighting first, the first to fight. So that's, that's what I like about that. Their, their nickname is the fighting first. They're the first to fight. And the first to stand up, the first to speak, the first to suffer, the first to die. Now I put those in there. This isn't part of their motto. This is part of the motto that I'm sort of building for us is in every situation in a culture we oftentimes will look around, especially when things are getting dark, and we'll look for someone to stand up. It's like, wh why isn't anyone standing up? Why isn't anyone saying anything? You ever had that feeling? Where is the person who's supposed to say something? Well, you do know that you're the fighting first, right? You do know who you have believed in. You've believed in, in the one who is the big red one. You're, you're the front lines. You're the one that is willing to stand up when no one else is willing to stand up. You're the one willing to speak when no one else is willing to speak. You see, this is an attribute of Christ, that he is willing to lead. We, we look at leadership, and we have all sorts of books on leadership, but very few of us really desire this model for leadership, the sort that says, take me, the sort that says, 
uh, someone needs to speak right now, and I know whoever speaks is going to get his head lopped off, but I need to speak then. I'm willing to do it. You see, when you are the one that stands when everyone else sits, that's hard. And many of us know the pressures of uh, political correctness are just popularity pressures. And we feel it, and it's dense, and it's thick. And when you're in a, a location like this, sitting in the Ellerslie Chapel, you can feel very bold. It's like, yes, I will stand. And yet, when the bullets are flying, and you're, behind, you're in a transport behind a ramp that is going to open, suddenly you don't feel so bold. It's like, I will be the first to hit the beaches. What is it about us that as humans we melt in that time, which is why we need something outside of ourselves? Many of us think that courage and boldness and to be the fighting first comes from some inner resolve that we have, that we're going to dig deep into our satchel of courage and we're going to pull it out in the day of testing. Actually, your satchel is going to come up with lint It is not going to have the substance that you need, and it will prove you weak. What you have to go into is something deeper. You have to go into the satchel of heaven. You have access to the grace of God to do what no man or woman would be able to do in and of themselves. That they are willing to stand up in a day and to do something that everyone else is trembling and fearful to do. Of course, one of my favorite examples is David. Uh, and Goliath. You have 40 days of proving that all of Israel is full of a whole bunch of cowards. You know that Saul, what it, how it describes Saul. Now, when we think of Saul, he's just sort of an average guy. Uh, and, you know, I don't know what color hair you think he has in your mind, but to me, he has dark hair. And, you know, he has a beard, a dark beard. And maybe it has a little gray in it by this time. But, you know, you have your mental picture of him. But in Scripture, it says that he was head and shoulders above all of Israel. He was a giant of a man. This is a huge guy. And so what you have is you have Goliath who comes down to boast in the Valley of Elah, funk, funk, sticks his feet uh, in that territory and then gives the challenge. What's he giving a challenge to? To Saul. (laughs) Saul, come out and meet me. Come on, Saul. Meet me. Are you a man? Come on, Saul. Saul is the leader and Saul will not fight him. Saul is, it's going to be giant to giant, guys, and yet Saul is weak. He's a symbol of the first, and the first, now I, I, I don't want to confuse our firsts in this message since I'm talking about the fighting first, and now I'm talking about firsts and seconds. There's always twos in Scripture, and the first one is unable. That's why we need to be born again. Jesus, even though he's the fighting first, he's the big red one, is the second man. So the first is the flesh, the second is the spirit man. And so what you're going to see is Saul is going to be proven weak. And then who shows up on the 41st day? The second king of Israel. The one who can actually do it. He's, I know it's going to sound strange with all my firsts and seconds, he's the fighting first. He's the one who is willing to be the first one to engage the enemy. He is the one who's willing to stand up first, to speak first. Is there not a cause? Let me at him. And so what we see is a model that is set in place, and we have a lineage that out of that lineage is going to come the fighting first, the big red one. So a cool picture from way back in the day. I'm not sure if this was the war game uh, model for it, 
but you, this is the beaches of Normandy all along there, and you see all those, uh, they're actually transport vehicles. They're, they're, they're pictures of the divisions that are landing, and so you're going to see two divisions. Uh, they're like a dark gray with an O on them over to the left. Here, I'll, I'll circle it here. You see they have an O on it? That's Omaha. And so you have the 1st and the 29th Infantry Divisions that are landing. And so you, over there you have a U, uh, a green one with a U on it. That's Utah. And then uh, you have all the other beaches. So there's five beaches in total, uh, Gold, Juno, and Sword. And so all, that's what's taking place, but that's at least giving you sort of a picture. This is actually going south, even though France, you think of the shoreline of France is going to be uh, to the east, but Norm the Normandy beaches are in this jutting out uh, portion, and so they're going to come south right there and, and uh, hit it. Isn't that a cool picture, though? I've always liked that. I'm very fascinated with maps, and I, I want to get in that and actually move things around. I, I, I feel like a little boy when I see that, and I want to like play a game and go, no, run. That's what I want to do when I see that. Omaha Beach, the harder way through. You see... Jesus is going to go a very, very difficult path. He is going to walk it for us. And what we see in this incredible story of Omaha Beach is you're going to have the fighting first that is going to do something for their country, and it's, it's quite extraordinary. Colonel uh, George Taylor, while commanding the 16th Infantry Regiment, 1st Infantry Division on Omaha Beach. So this is out of that uh, division, there's multiple regiments and multiple battalions and multiple companies. And so this is the 16th Infantry Regiment, which has a whole legendary history of its own. And it's, this guy says, two kinds of people are staying on this beach, the dead and those who are going to die. <laughs> and then he uses some curse words to say, let's get out of here. Uh, but I skip that. Uh, we'll just summarize that one. Uh, and I, I, I really, I, I love just the the feeling of this. I, I love some of the quotes that come from D-Day and what these uh, what these leaders even yell at their troops are really they're humorous and fun. In other words, they they seem to have a humor that is maintained even in the midst, like a wit that is maintained even in the midst of the darkest hour. Uh, a lot of people they call it gallows humor, where uh, if you're around a lot of death, then you have a tendency to joke about it as a defense mechanism to sort of psychologically survive. We've joked about it at Ellerslie that we have sort of, it's not a gallows humor, it's a ministry humor. <laughs> when you have so much that's hitting you that you actually start joking about it. And uh, it's very similar in war that they, they joke about it. You know, this, they're, they're in the sand and this hand pops up and they're like, hey, that's Jack's hand. Uh, and they shake it as they walk by. And, you know, it's like these these things, it's like, oh, that's terrible. And yet it's like survival for these guys to actually be able to keep a sound mind in the midst of it. They have to joke. I think that's a fascinating quality in the way God created us, that we go to laughter in the darkest of hours. There's a great story in World War I of the Australians are considered by most uh, in military historians and even soldiers as the toughest of soldiers. And uh, so this group of Australian men are dropped off uh, in, it was the Battle of Gallipoli, and it, they, they had been dropped off in the wrong spot. And they basically got stuck in this little lagoon, and this cliffs are surrounding it, 
and all the Turkish uh, soldiers are sitting there and they're basically like fish in a bowl. Uh, and so what do they start doing? They, they start yelling back. I mean, it's, it's really funny quotes that the Australians are just like, hey, can you hit us? Uh, this, this is too easy for you. Uh, let us up there and we can show you more of an even battle. And they're like yelling, hey, you missed me. They're like yelling out the whole while. They're, the, they're going to die, basically, <laughs> as long and short. They're dead men, and yet they're laughing and joking about it the whole time. Okay, you know. Uh, <clears throat> So the biblical account, the best known of all Jewish infantry divisions is the big red one. Okay, now that's me summarizing all of scripture right there in a very uh, simple statement. So, you know, you have history of uh, American warfare and of, of infantry divisions. And yes, the most famous may be the big red one or the first division. However, in all of history, you want an infantry division. It says, uh, you remember when I was talking about David uh, in the Old Testament, it says, uh, in the times when uh, kings went off to war, uh, and it's, it's basically in the spring, and that's when Jesus in the New Testament is going to go off to war. He's going to go off in Nisan 14, Passover day. He is going to go to war. He is an infantry division, and he is going to be an infantry division of one. He is the big red one. And he is going to literally break the back of the evil one. He is going to pierce fortress Satan, fortress sin, by himself. This is an extraordinary thing if you recognize how massive warfare is to recognize that this one man is going to do what he is going to do. So 1 Samuel 17, 42, and when the Philistine looked about and saw David, he disdained him, for he was but a youth and ruddy and of a fair countenance. Now, many of us have heard that, and we understand that, and we, we say, what's ruddy? That's not a term we use, and it's sort of like red, reddish hue, whether or not he had red hair, you know, in the freckles, but some, somehow, you know, he has this red hue to him, whether it's skin that easily burns, or whether it's red hair, or whether it's the freckles, I don't know. But somehow in his description, he's also considered, you know, fair countenance, he was a very handsome uh, guys, so however you interpret that, it's not a negative thing, right? But he's red. We have ourselves a red one, guys, and he's coming against Goliath. However, you know, as we study Ruddy, I just, I really liked the uh, poetry in that, so a study of Ruddy. If we were to look at the Hebrew words for this that get translated into red and Ruddy, because that's what Ruddy is, it's red. You first of all have a verb, to be red or ruddy, Adam. Does that sound familiar? And then we have a noun version of it, Adam, a man of the dust of the red earth. So the name Adam, as we know, is actually red one. Isn't that interesting? Uh, and so the proper masculine noun, which we know is the proper name of Adam, Adam, the first man created of the dust of the red earth. And then we have an adjective, adom, red or ruddy, the color of dust, the color of the earth. And then we have edom, edom, otherwise known as Esau, red, the firstborn of the old nature, bearing the nature of the earth. Feminine uh, noun, the adama, earth, ground, or land. And then the adjective, adom, ad, ad, admone, red or ruddy, like the color of dust, like the red of the earth. Okay, so there we just did a quick uh, biblical study uh, in the Hebrew of the word red. And what you're going to notice 
is the same thing that I would notice if I looked through it. I would say, is this a good word or a bad word? Wait a minute. You know, it seems to signify the first, but this is not the version of the first, the fighting first that we're looking at. This is like first condition, which is not good in Scripture. What we want is a second condition. You see, the first is of the flesh. It's of the earth. It's earthy. But the second is from heaven. So Adam is going to be the first man, the first Adam. Jesus is the last Adam or the second man. And it's the second man that is actually, ironically, the fighting first, that is the big red one. So that's strange. I thought the first one was red. So you see how this can be a little confusing. That's because there's two reds. You see, we have a red of Adam, and we have a red of Jesus. You have a red of the flesh, the first condition of sin, and you have a red of heaven, the passion of the Christ. And so, is it a good or a bad word? Well, it depends on how it's being used. Is it being used to describe the first, or is it being used to describe the red of the second? So Genesis 2-7, and the Lord God formed man of the dust of the Adama. So what we have is the Lord God formed Adam, or Adam, of the dust of the Adama and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and Adam became a living being. So it gives you a good, at least, understanding of where the word Adam comes from and how man got his name, doesn't it? He's the red one. And yet he's a red one that is red of this earth. He's of the earth, earthy. That's why you see Paul using that phrase in Corinthians. He's saying he's of the earth, he's earthy. But the second man, the last Adam, the last red one, is going to be of heaven. So we have these two red ones. Isn't that interesting? It's like the first red one, you might as well put a, a, a lowercase r and a lowercase o on the one, okay? Because it's like, pfft. okay, he's going to fail. And then there's a capital version, the big, the big, the capital red one. That's the one we're after. So Genesis 25, 25, and the first came out, and this is speaking of Esau and Jacob in the womb of Rebekah. They're being born right now. And the first came out, Admonai, or red or ruddy, all over like a hairy garment, and they called his name Esau. And so we have a red one, guys. Uh, however, this is a lowercase red one. He's a firstborn, and he is going to be rejected by God. He is not going to esteem the things of heaven. And ironically, the secondborn, which is Jacob, is going to be the one that pleases God. He's going to be known as Israel in the long run. So in Genesis 25, 30, I think it, it is for some reason. Yeah, I think it's 25, 30. Someone could check me on that. And Esau said to Jacob, feed me, I pray thee, with that same Adom pottage. So he has red pottage that he has. He's very attracted to the red, right? Uh, for I am faint, therefore his name was called Edom. Does that sound a little like Adam? It is. Very similar. And it means red, like Adam, bearing the nature of the firstborn. So he is going to be an Adam. He is going to be one that is going to fail. He is going to get that nickname. Oh, he's the red one. Isn't that interesting? Yeah, he's the guy that sold his birthright for a bowl of red. stew, but it was red of this earth. That would, that's which would satisfy temporarily. Isn't that interesting? There seems to be a red that satisfies temporarily, and yet I want to talk about 
the big red one, the red that satisfies eternally. Think about that. You know that Jesus is going to give us a cup. He's going to set it in front of us. He says, here's a red that will satisfy you eternally. So which one do you want? The red pottage, <laughs> which is always, I always thought that is one of the strangest words, pottage. I don't want to eat pottage. Give me oatmeal or something like that, but pottage just sounds weird uh, to me. And so as a result, it's like you have a red pottage and you have a red cup. Which one? Are you going to choose the things of this earth to satisfy you or are you going to choose the things of heaven? Are you going to choose to be and remain in the first man, Adam? Or are you willing to put off that red of this earth, of the dust of this earth, of the weakness of this earth, which is satisfied in dust? And are you willing to be satisfied by the things of heaven and to put on the big red one? So 1 Corinthians 15, through 49, you actually see Paul talking about this very thing. There is a natural body and there is a spiritual body. There is a natural body, and there's a spiritual body. I was talking to the students uh, here this past week about the fact that when Eric believes in Jesus, there is a new creature that is created. A new creation is another translation for it. It is a new man, and it's superimposed. Like, you can't see it. But it's real, and it has the same features. Just imagine me, but an invisible me that overlays this body. And it has eyes, but they're spiritual eyes. And it can now see and discern what God would see and discern. It has ears, but they're spiritual ears. They can't be seen, and they don't hear noises in this earth. They hear noises in the heavenly realm. They hear things that they couldn't hear before. This mind is now the mind of Christ. I have a physical mind, but I have an overlaid mind. And what I'm supposed to allow is for my spiritual ears to now dictate to my, my physical ears. And my spiritual eyes to dictate to my physical eyes that I actually believe what I see spiritually is more important than what I see physically. So even if I see a mountain in the physical and my mind says, that's impossible, and my ears hear someone say, yeah, that can't be picked up and thrown into the sea, my spiritual man actually trumps that. And I say, but God says that if I have faith the size of a mustard seed, that physical mountain could be picked up and thrown into the sea. And so my spiritual eyes see it. My spiritual ears hear his word. My spiritual mind reasons according to a higher plane. You see, there is a, a physical or a natural man. And that natural man is dead because of sin. And it has no capacity to discern these other things that I'm describing. It cannot please God in this condition. But there's also a spiritual body. And so it is written, the first man, Adam, was made a living soul. The last Adam, the last red one, was made a quickening spirit. Howbeit, that was not first which is spiritual, but that which is natural, and afterward that which is spiritual. The first man is of the earth, earthy. The second man is the Lord from heaven. As is the earthy, such are they also that are earthy. And as is the heavenly, such are they also that are heavenly. And as we have borne the image of the earthy, so we shall bear the image of the heavenly. The first Adam, we'll call him the old man. That's how you oftentimes refer to it. It's like 
the Leave it to Beaver days, you know, you would talk about your father as your old man. You guys remember that? Eddie Haskell, my old man. That's what I grew up with is Eddie Haskell talking about his old man. And I don't know that it's considered very respectful to call your father your old man, okay? It might be normal back in the 50s, but I don't know if it was ever respectful, especially since Eddie Haskell was doing it. If you've ever seen Leave it to Beaver, you have to agree with me. Eddie Haskell was not the most respectful character. Uh, by the way, I did get the, the actor for Eddie Haskell. This is just a side piece of trivia that's important for all of you to know. His name is Ken Osmond. And I, when I was in high school, received an autographed picture, an 8 by 10 glossy of Ken Osmond. Uh, that's why I'm quoting uh, Eddie Haskell in here. You know, he has a deep part of my life. The first Adam, the old man, he's of this earth, earthy. He is clay red and bearing the look and behavior of the earthen realm. He looks like the earth. He looks like the world. This is the way the world is. And guess what? That first red is like the world. The product of the first creation out of the red earth. It's interesting because even the state we're in, uh, Colorado, color red, oh. <laughs> it's sort of like color red, and then we're like, oh. <laughs> Talk about a, a state that is of the world. I mean, oh, Lord Jesus, uh, color of heaven, oh, is what we need to change it to. Uh, you know, we need to change our name somehow. Maybe if I become governor, I could, I could make a petition, start a petition for that. So it's the product of the first creation out of the red earth. So the second Adam, Jesus, he's of heaven, heavenly, blood red. So the other one was clay red. He's of the earth, but this one is different. This is blood red and bearing the look and behavior of the holy heavenly kingdom, the bringer of the new creation in his blood. Okay, so you see these two reds. Isn't that just interesting that blood, whether or not blood when it's in the body is red, I have no idea what it looks like in the body. I've heard people say, well, you know, have the different things, but it's when it is exposed to light that it shows as red. I don't think any of us going to argue that blood is red, okay? I think that's a safe statement, right? So what you have is the symbol of the heart, the passion, the passion of heaven that has come down. For God so loved the world that he gave. I mean, this is the big red one, guys, the first to jump into battle, the first one to fight off the enemy, the first one to take the hit, the first one to die, the first sufferer. This is the red of heaven. Enlisting in the first. So... Imagine that uh, we have an opportunity to be normal, everyday humans, you know, of this earth, you know, the typical, they, we look like the earth, or we could enlist in the big red one. I mean, if, if you're a soldier, you have to admit, if you're in the army, you would be very interested in being in the uh, 1st Infantry Division, and you would be very proud of your history, and you'd be quoting it, and you'd be, you know, saying some of the great statements and the histories. You'd be referring to Omaha Beach and, uh, of course, you would reference World War I and, you know, just on the side uh, and make it very clear that you're part of a great cloud of witness, this, this history, this storied, fabled history. You know, we as Christians have a first infantry division that we are called to enlist in. And there's only one division when it comes to Christianity. One, Jesus. It's the Jesus division. It's called the Church of Jesus Christ, and we need to enlist and it is the first infantry division. It is the big red one. I mean, so everything about this is intriguing to my mind because that's exactly what we enlist in. And we enlist in it. 
We actually believe in Christ Jesus. We are clothed in his working, in his might. We are clothed in the big red one. That's actually how it is described in scripture. So here's how it works. You have to humble yourself. You have to repent. You have to believe. You have to receive. And then you need to take the beach. So now that's a grand summary of something that each one of those we could take a lot of time on, right? Humble yourself. It's like, oh yeah, sure. Well, you do know what that means, right? That means to give up your life as you now know it. To actually acknowledge that you are in need of a Savior. To acknowledge that without Jesus, you have no hope in this world. That you have defied God, you have violated his law, that you are in fact and rightfully so deemed a sinner and that you are deserving of eternal condemnation and separation from God. You have to humble yourself. And then there's something that you're clinging to. Your rights, your reputation, something. Something that you have put your confidence in that has defined you. It's your identity. And you need to let that go. You need to give that up. Because these hands, this, this grip that you have of faith is not meant to hold on to any other saviors. Anything else that you think could pull it off for you, yourself or something else, you need to let go of it. You need to repent so that you can cling to him. And then you need to believe. That's the clinging to him. It's saying, Jesus, I believe that you can win the day. I believe that you have won the day. I believe that you have defeated the enemy. And we enter into his victory by faith. This receive thing is a very interesting thing that most of us struggle with. Because we're struggling in the very beginning you know, to humble yourself, let alone to get down to receive. But when you have believed in Jesus, all heaven opens up to you. It's the treasury of heaven. It's like door unlocked. It's open. And yet we feel sheepish about taking from the king's stash, the king's inheritance. It's like, who am I to do that? And don't you feel, even when you pray, it's like, Jesus, I'm so sorry for bothering you, but I was just sort of wondering, could you help me? And we're sheepish as opposed to bold. And what's interesting is the kingdom of heaven functions after a very different pattern than what we oftentimes think as humans. We're taking our red of this earth mentality into the kingdom of heaven, we need to have a change of mind, which is also what repentance means. We need to have an alteration of thought that to honor our God, we boldly take what he has set before us to take by faith. So you want to honor God? Instead of being sheepish and going, I'm so sorry to bother you, could you imagine taking the beaches of Normandy like that? Oh, uh, I am so sorry to invade this country. I am so sorry. God, could you somehow maybe give me what I need as opposed to, let's take it. God has supplied us everything we need because you've already reached into that storehouse. You've already taken out the weapons of warfare that are mighty the pulling down of strongholds. You have a job to do and everything that you need is in the big red one. Boldly take it. So you need to receive that strength you need to go into that treasury and take of what God has given you. So one of the, the mental pictures I have when it talks about love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control, remember the fruit of the Spirit, and then it says against these things there is no law. We're so used to law hindering us from moving forward. It's like, oh, you can't do that. 
No, 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 you can't do that. Oh, you were thinking of doing that? Oh, no, no. So it's like anything that's good, there's a law against it, right? That's the way we as Christians feel. And yet, I just gave you a list of things against which there is no law. There is no hand slap. There's no sign that says beware. In fact, there's an open door, and all the treasury of heaven is open to you. You want love? Come in and get it. Come on, who's going to believe God enough to go in and get the love that he has for me? Shed it abroad in your hearts. As much as you desire, you can access. Come in. Grab a hold of whatever you want. Your joy. Come in and get it. Most of us think that God has a little uh, eyedropper full of joy, and he's looking around, and he's like, okay, guys, we have this much joy for the day. I need to spread it out amongst all of you. And so each of you comes up, he's like, stick out your tongue. You're like, mm. And it's like, Deet. and it's like, bloop, bloop, and it lands on there. And some of you, it didn't come out like it, and it, it, it was empty. You're like, huh. And, and, and he's like, I'm sorry, but we're out for the day. <laughs> That's the exact opposite of how the kingdom of heaven works. As much joy as you have capacity to handle, and then tomorrow he'll begin to increase your capacity. There is no hand slap to the kingdom of heaven as you come in to cart out a whole bunch of peace. And he's like, hey, 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 leave some for the rest of us. There is no correction in this. There is only applause. Take it. Take as much as you desire. Why? Because it's limitless. We have entered the kingdom of heaven, and we must enter it boldly to receive the chief gift, which is the Holy Spirit. But the Holy Spirit is the catalyst through which all of the rest of God is brought to us. So yes, ask for the Holy Spirit, and then boldly begin to take in the kingdom of heaven into your life in fullest measure. And so now, guys, let's take the beach. You see, do you fear what man can do to you if you serve the living God? If greater is he that is in you than he that is in this world, uh, should you fear the beach that you need to take? You see, you guys are in the big red one. You're in the one who has defeated the foe. You are in the one who is red with the glow of heaven, with the victory of heaven. I mean, even your patch, which is not a, you know, what a gold patch with a little one there. Your patch is your armor. It is your clothing. It's called the robe of righteousness. My guess is that it's red. Okay, that's just always been my mental picture is that it's a symbol of the shed blood of Jesus that we're clothed in, right? So my mental picture is that we have a red uniform. Isn't that cool? And it's armor. It has like, it's sort of like one of those superhero outfits, you know, like he's a Captain America type of a thing where it has like, if you're a guy, if you're a girl, you may not want, you know, the strong pectoral muscles and the, the six-pack there is. <laughs> That's the uniform we have. What the girl version is, I'm not exactly sure, okay? I've been, I've been studying the guy version of it. Uh, it is like a superhero costume. Isn't that an amazing thought? I don't know if there's the red cape behind it, but we can put it there, okay? This enables you to accomplish things in this earth that no normal human could do because you are not of the red of Adam and of Edom. You are not the red of the first, which is under the justice of God, the judgment of God, and the condemnation of God. God says, put off the old man and put on Christ. Enlist 
in the big red one. And nothing will stop you. And even as you approach the beaches of Normandy and machine gun fire is blistering off the transport vehicle that you're in, could you imagine knowing that you're in the big red one and having the courage and the grace to be able to reach into for even such a time as that? No matter what you face in the future, if it's extreme or maybe not as extreme as that, because it could be more extreme, guys, you do not fear it because you have access to the red of heaven. You have access to the strength and the power of Almighty God. And the same thing that caused David to be fearless before the champion of Gath is the same thing that you have access to. You are on a commission. Your supreme commander is Jesus Christ. He cannot lose. No weapon fashioned against you, no beachhead fortified against you can stop the saints of God from progressing in this world. If we wake up to the power of our division, the power of the military corps that we're in, if we wake up to the power of our supreme commander, we have something very special, and this world will be changed. Father, train our hands for war. Teach us how to battle in you. Be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. We must know how to be strong. And it's not in our Adam's strength. It's in the Lord. Lord, teach us, prepare us, equip us, and send us. We love you, Lord. It's in the precious name we pray. Amen. Daily Thunder is a listener-supported production of Ellerslie Discipleship Training. At Ellerslie, we are laboring to rouse the Church of Jesus Christ out of its lethargy and build brave-hearted Christians for such a time as this. Daily Thunder is delivered live and streamed daily Monday through Friday at 8.15 a.m. And our weekend service is streamed at 9 a.m. on Sunday mornings. Join us at live.ellerslie.com. We invite you to visit us at the beautiful Ellerslie campus in Windsor, Colorado for a day, a week, or an entire season of gospel-centered spiritual training. Learn more at ellerslie.com. Thanks for listening.